the zeroth law of science. Science itself is as old as Aristotle, but the idea that science is the universal explainer is quite new. It took hold in Europe and America in the late 19th century. For most of human history, observation and deduction was one way among many that we might know about the world. The scientific method is attributed to Francis Bacon in the 16th century, but it was not given a privileged status until the 19th century. The place that is afforded to science establishment in our world has been occupied previously in human history by organized religion. People trusted the Bible as an infallible source of truth, but even the power of the church in historic Europe is at best a partial analogy for the status that we afford to science today. Never in human history has a single methodology been recognized as the only legitimate way to know what is true. Scientism is related to the doctrine of materialism or physicalism, which holds that matter, energy, and physical forces provide a complete description of everything and there's no room for consciousness or spirit or intention as a causative agent. But the zeroth law actually goes beyond this to assert that the universe is made up of one kind of stuff, and this stuff obeys the same laws always and everywhere. Today, it's not the methodology of science, but increasingly it's the opinions of scientific experts that we rely on as unassailable truth. This is a grave danger, compounded by the fact that scientists are employed by the people who are not necessarily committed to the scientific method, but are out to make money or to preserve their political power. This is the corruption of the scientific establishment and it's not the story I want to talk about today. I'm asking a deeper question. Is it reasonable for us to rely on the scientific method as our one and only way of knowing what is true? I am a scientist, first and foremost. My undergraduate and doctoral degrees are both in physics. I've authored dozens of publications in physics and more recently in computational biology and biostatistics. I am a scientist by temperament. Scientific thinking is my go-to modality when I try to figure out what's true. But today I want to question the unstated assumptions on which science is built. What I call the zeroth law of science is that the world obeys fixed laws. If I run an experiment and you run an experiment and we get different results, that means one of us has made a mistake. The laws of physics are the same in your lab and in my lab. They're the same today as they were yesterday. It's obvious that this is pretty true, true enough to be useful as an assumption for planning and evaluating experiments, for deciding what to believe, true enough to be the basis for all of modern technology. But is it absolutely true? Are there exceptions? Are there miracles? Are the laws of nature changing over time? Are the laws themselves plastic in response to the expectations of the experimenter and other people in the room? Scientists never question these assumptions, and yet they are assumptions, not logical necessities. 
And what's more, they're hypotheses that we might test. We can regard the zeroth law as a scientific hypothesis and test it in the same way that we would test any other scientific hypothesis. What follows is an adaptation of an article I wrote in 2018. The original formulation of the zeroth law went something like this. Nature obeys fixed laws, exactly, no exceptions, and the laws are the same everywhere and for all time. This idea was part of the zeitgeist of the mid-19th century, especially in England. Remarkably, within just a few decades, it went from being a bold land grab by the scientists to a litmus test for whether you really believe in science, to an assumption that everyone just made, and it was kind of what Kant called a synthetic a priori, a statement about the real world which must logically be true. But once it is stated explicitly like this, it becomes obvious that it's a statement about the way the world works. It's testable, as any good scientific hypothesis should be. We can ask, is it true? And we can design experiments to try to falsify it. Yes, falsification is fundamental to the epistemology of experimental science. You can never prove a hypothesis, but you can try your darndest to disprove it, and if you fail repeatedly, then the hypothesis starts to look pretty good, and we call that a theory. Well, the zeroth law only lasted a few decades before it was blatantly and shockingly falsified by quantum mechanics. The quantum world does not obey fixed laws, but behaves unpredictably. Place a piece of uranium next to a Geiger counter, and the timing of the clicks that tell us somewhere inside a uranium atom has turned to lead, appears not fixed, but completely random. So the zeroth law was amended by the quantum gurus, Planck, Bohr, Schrodinger, Heisenberg, and Dirac. The new formulation went like this. The laws of physics at the most fundamental level are half completely fixed and determined, and half pure randomness. The fixed part is the same everywhere and for all time. The random part passes every mathematical test for randomness and is in principle unpredictable, unrelated to anything anywhere in the universe at any time. Einstein protested that the universe couldn't possibly be this ornery. God doesn't play dice, is the way it's usually quoted. Einstein wanted to restore the original zeroth law from the 19th century, to this day, the common wisdom in science is that Einstein was wrong. If we think now about how would we dare to challenge the zeroth law with empirical tests, what are some of the experiments we might devise? Well, the law as it now stands has two parts, and we might test each of them separately. For the first part, we'd work with macroscopic systems, where the quantum randomness is predicted to average out. And we'd arrange to repeat a simple experiment and see if we can fully account for the quantitative differences in results from one experiment to the next. For the second part, we'd do the opposite, measure microscopic events at the level of the single quantum, looking for patterns in the experimental results which are predicted to be purely random. So part one, are the fixed laws really fixed? 
In biology, it's very far from being true. I worked in a worm laboratory in Beijing a few years ago, participating in statistical analysis of thousands of protein abundances. The first question I asked was about repeatability. The experiment was done twice as a biological replicate. One week later, same lab, same person doing the experiment, same equipment, averaging over hundreds of worms, all of which are genetically identical. But the results were far from identical. The correlation between week one and week two was r equals 0.4. The results were more different than they were the same. People who were more experienced than me told me this is the way it is with data from a biolab. It's routine procedure to perform the experiment several times and then average over the results, though the results are very different. This is commonly explained by the fact that no two living things are the same, so it's not really the same experimental conditions, not at the level of atoms and molecules. Biology is a derived science. A better test of the zeroth law would be to repeat a physics experiment. On the surface, everyone who does experiments in any science knows that the equipment is touchy, and it commonly takes several tries to, quote, get it right. It's routine to throw away many experimental trials for each one that we keep. This is explained as human error, and undoubtedly, a great deal of it really is human error. But what this means is, if there were some substantive issues with repeatability, it would be camouflaged by the human error all around, and we'd never know it. Measurement of fundamental constants, for example, is an area where physicists are motivated to repeat experiments in labs around the world and attempt to identify all sources of experimental error and quantify them. I believe it's routine for more discrepancies to appear than can be accounted for with catalogued uncertainties. For example, we can look at measurements of the fine structure constant. This is a combination of the charge on the electron with Planck's constant and the speed of light that is a dimensionless number. Its value is approximately 1 over 137, and it doesn't matter what units you use, it always comes out the same. When we look at measurements of the fine structure constant from various labs around the world over the last 25 years or so, we find what we would expect, that the error bars overlap with each other, that the error bars get smaller and smaller, but always within the expected range. So this appears to be an example of a case in which the zeroth law of science holds well. Contrast this to measurements of the gravitational constant. G is the constant in Newton's equation for gravity, and it's hard to measure because gravity is very weak, and because if we use, for example, the Earth's gravity for our measurement, then we have the problem that gravitational force depends on the product of the gravitational constant and the Earth's mass. And we have no independent way of knowing the Earth's mass accurately, so we can't separate the value of the gravitational constant. In practice, this means that gravity has to be measured in a laboratory by placing one heavy object next to another and measuring the gravitational attraction between the two. Gravity is so weak 
that if you put a 10-pound lead ball right next to another 10-pound lead ball, the gravitational force between the two is less than a billionth of an ounce. So it takes delicate equipment to make this measurement. A recent review of the subject compares 14 measurements of the gravitational constant, including the error bars on those measurements. And what we find is that the discrepancies among the 14 measurements are much bigger than you'd expect from the error bars. In other words, the error bars don't overlap the way we would expect. There are 14 measurements, and we should expect 10 of them to include the accepted value within their error bars, but only two actually do. And we should expect 13 out of the 14 to include the accepted value within two error bar lengths, but only eight out of the 14 do. Clearly, there are sources of error here that are unaccounted for, but in the culture of today's science, no one would adduce this as evidence against the zeroth law. The conventional view is that the experimenters are just too optimistic about their error bars. This situation, nevertheless, offers an opportunity to do further experiments and see if we can account more rigorously for all possible errors. Of note, there is a theory called modified Newtonian dynamics, or MOND, that was hypothesized to explain the motion of stars in distant galaxies. Astronomers actually regard this as a respectable alternative to the idea of dark matter. According to MOND, there's a small correction to Newton's gravity when the gravitational field is extremely weak, as it is in the laboratory. So MOND might be an alternative reason for these disparate values of the measured gravitational constant, which doesn't imply a violation of the zeroth flaw. But the principle is that what I'm proposing in general, we might test the zeroth law with other physics experiments that are repeated at different times and places to see if there are differences in the various results over and above what we can attribute to known experimental uncertainty. Moving on now to part two, is quantum randomness really random? Here, there's an unequivocal answer. There are real experiments that have been done, and there's solid evidence that the answer is no. From the 1970s through the 2000s, in the Princeton laboratory of Robert John and Brenda Dunn, Experiments were performed with ordinary people trying to change the output of a quantum random number generator called a REG, R-E-G. The effect was very small, but overwhelmingly significant in the aggregate. When experimental subjects were put in front of a screen and asked to use their willpower to make the numbers on the screen go higher, the average result was different by about a part in 10,000 from when they were trying to make the numbers lower. The difference persisted over hundreds of thousands of trials, so the aggregate probability that this could have been the result of chance was less than one in a million. More recently, the same principle has been established by experiments by Dean Radin and independently by Roger Nelson. People who have looked carefully find that there is an effect of mind on results at the atomic level that should be quantum random. And this would seem to violate the second clause of the zeroth law. 
Robert John was Dean of Engineering at Princeton and a prominent researcher in aerospace engineering until his credibility was attacked for daring to even ask these questions that are considered out of bounds by conventional science. The takedown of Robert John represents a shameful triumph of scientism over the true spirit and methodology of science. Later, Dean Radin performed a completely different experiment based on the same idea of human intention influencing quantum events. Radin reports experimental results that are positive for people who have a meditation practice, but not significant for people who don't meditate. Radin's results were obtained with a much smaller sample than John's at Princeton and over a few weeks rather than many years. More amusing than informative is the legend of Wolfgang Pauli, one of the geniuses who laid the foundation for quantum physics, and in particular the relationship between theory of the atom and chemical properties of the elements. The legend is that whenever Pauli walked into a room, experimental apparatus would stop working for no identifiable reason, and this came to be called the Pauli effect. So, do we really care about this? If the effect of human intention on quantum random events is so small that it has to be measured thousands of times to be sure that we're seeing it, does it really have any practical significance in our world? Well, I would answer a resounding yes for three reasons. First, there's a hypothesis that we have more influence when we care more. Human emotions and intention have a tiny effect on lab experiments in which we have little stake for our lives and our destiny, but the positive results in principle leave open the possibility that we are profoundly, if unconsciously, influencing the events in our lives that mean most to us. And perhaps with meditation and prayer and focused intent, we can consciously influence distant events. People who have thought more about this than I find evidence for a collective effect in which many people meditating on the same intent can have dramatic effects. And this is the subject of the experiments by Roger Nelson that I mentioned. And the second reason is 90 years after quantum theory was first formulated, the physics community remains deeply divided over what it means. One school holds a place for consciousness in the fundamental workings of quantum physics. This is not currently the dominant interpretation, but it is the one advocated by Schrodinger himself, and it was attractive to several prominent physicists who followed him, especially de Broglie, Bohm, Pauli, Wigner, and von Neumann. The idea was expanded into three book-length treatments by a Berkeley professor named Henry Stapp, S-T-A-P-P. -P. More accessible is my favorite book on the subject, Elemental Mind, by Nick Herbert. And third, there's the link between quantum biology and the hard problem of metaphysics. So what is the relationship between our conscious experience and activity of neurons in the brain? Quantum biology has firmly established a special role for quantum mechanics in some biological processes, including photosynthesis, and beyond this, more radical proponents see quantum effects as essential to life, 
John Joe McFadden of Surrey University has put forth the hypothesis that consciousness is a driving force in evolution. And Stuart Kaufman, a pioneer in the mathematical physics of chaos, has collected evidence for quantum criticality in our brains. Let me unpack this idea for you. Human-designed machines are engineered to perform reliably. If we run a computer program twice, we don't want it to turn up two different answers. This must be true, despite the fact that every transistor relies on quantum effects that are essentially stochastic. So the trick used by electrical engineers is to make each transistor just large enough so that there are many electrons with every switching event and quantum uncertainty almost never plays a role in the outcome. To make this quantitative, in today's microprocessors, each transistor is just a few hundred atoms across, so it contains perhaps a million atoms. The computer on which I do evolutionary simulations runs at five gigahertz, meaning that there are several billion switch events each second, if one of my simulations runs for a few minutes, there are more than a trillion events, and any one of them could change the outcome. So the fact that these simulations run reliably means that the probability of any transistor being influenced by quantum randomness is much less than one in a trillion. Well, contrast this with the way our brains work. Neurotransmitters are molecules that flip between two conformations, two very different shapes, dependent on their chemical and electrical environments. Kaufman has shown that most such molecules are designed or evolved to be unreliable in the sense that they jump with maximal ease between the two conformations, and they exist in the brain in what's called a superposition state. This is the quantum jargon for saying that the atoms are in two places at once. Their state is a mixture of the two conformations in a way that makes no sense to our intuitions that are attuned to macroscopic reality. But the point is that electrical engineers determined to make each tiny component of a computer just as reliable as possible. But nature seems to have gone out of her way to make our brains out of components that are as unreliable as possible. Kaufman interprets this to suggest that free will is a phenomenon that exists outside the realm of quantum wave functions, perhaps in a dualistic Cartesian or Platonic world, and that the brain is evolved to amplify the subtle quantum effects where our intent is capable of influence, and thus to allow our consciousness to shape our thoughts and, through neurons, to control our muscular movements. This is also the premise of Stapp's books a few minutes ago, I said that the reason that experiments in the quantum effect of pure thought are very small is that we have no skin in the game, no real motivation to make the numbers higher or lower. But within our bodies, just the opposite is true. Learning to control the body with the mind is something that every baby learns to do during the first months of life. My hypothesis is that a living organism is a partnership between a mind, which is a non-physical thing, and a brain, which is a quantum computer. 
What the baby is doing is learning to use the effect of consciousness on quantum probabilities in a kind of biofeedback training to gain exquisite control over the nerves in the brain and through the brain to muscles in the body. If this is true, it suggests that the zeroth law isn't necessarily false, but that mind has a separate existence outside of today's physics, but with physical consequences. We should be looking for ways to extend theories of fundamental physics to include mind as an irreducible element of reality. Note on technology, machines work, by and large. We count on them as a matter of everyday experience. We put the keys in the ignition, we expect the car to start. And when we run a computer program twice, we don't expect to get different answers. But this is weak evidence for the zeroth law. Machines are engineered for a level of reliability that serves a specific market, and in critical applications, they have redundancies built in to assure fail-safe performance. The existence of so many high-tech devices that generally work is the source of an intuitive faith in the zeroth law, but if we ask more carefully about the meaning of their reliability, we can only conclude that the world is generally governed by physical laws that work with good precision and reliability most of the time. And what of real miracles, macroscopic miracles? I published a substack on this subject on Christmas Day, and I'll turn that into a podcast very soon. On the subject of the zeroth law in general, here's my take-home message. I suggest that it's a worthwhile project to test science itself at the most fundamental level by conducting the same experiment in different places at different times and see if we can account for all of the differences and results that we find. And more specifically concerning the experimenter effect, there's definite evidence that the mind of the experimenter affects the outcome of experiments. Others involved in the experiment indirectly probably also have effects. This is a paradigm-shifting result, and perhaps for this reason, there are very few in the scientific community who are facing up to what it means. We have to re-examine the idea about objectivity and reproducibility that are really the bedrock of the scientific method.